Lord Jesus, we do acknowledge that you are with us this morning, Lord, that you are with us always to the very end of the age. Lord, we ask that you would guide our time now in your word, may you instruct us and um, draw us to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, just this past week, one afternoon, I went to pick up my two-year-old daughter from daycare. And she and a couple of her cohorts were having to pick up some blocks that they had shoved off the table onto the floor. But like most children probably do, when she saw her dad walk in the room, she thought her task was finished and she got to cut out early and go on home. Now for some reason, when I come to pick her up and they are on the playground, she is not quite so eager to go home. And I'm assuming that some of you parents can identify with me this morning. But marching orders are taken different ways, sometimes easier than others, depending on who's giving them and what they are. And this morning we embark on a new journey, a trend-setting journey found in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13 and 14, where a church received clear marching orders from God. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I want to catch us up to speed with just some brief background information. But the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ has appeared to his disciples. And he's commanded them to to go and make other disciples, to go and make other followers in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that He's commanded them. We see another picture of that at the beginning of Acts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when He tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in the very next verse in In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, we we read that that risen Lord Jesus then ascended back to his rightful place of authority, next to his Father in heaven. And so the resurrected Jesus, King Jesus, is now sitting at the right hand of his Father in heaven, on the throne. And as he promised, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Counselor, has been poured out on the New Testament church in Christ's absence. Christ told his followers, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you, but this is for your own benefit because the Spirit is going to come. So the Spirit's poured out in Acts chapter 2 on the church, and as a result, the gospel flourishes. The church in Jerusalem takes off, and it's growing by the thousands as people are coming to faith in this guy named Jesus. And in Acts chapter 2, verse or chapter 2 verse uh, through chapter 7, uh, we read about the spread of the church, the spread of the church in Jerusalem, and how it's taking off, and they're meeting day after day, even in the midst of severe and intense opposition and persecution and threats from the religious leaders in their day. And we get to chapters 8 through 11, and the gospel continues to spread as, as those who are in Jerusalem under persecution now scatter. They go to various places as a result of persecution, and as a result of their scattering, they take the gospel with them, the good news of salvation in Christ, and they begin to share it with other Jews in the various places they go. 
And the church takes off that way. And in chapters 8 through 11, we see the gospel spreading beyond just uh, Jews in Judea, but encompassing all of, all of Samaria. Those hated people, those despised people that ethnic Jews avoided because they had intermarried with, with other people, people who worshipped pagan gods. And even so, the gospel takes off. And we read in chapter 11 of Acts, verse 21, that the gospel went so far north as Antioch in Syria. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord there in Antioch. And so as a result of that, two guys, Barnabas and Saul, end up in Antioch to instruct the new Christians there. Verse 26 of chapter 11. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And then the very next chapter, we read about uh, Paul and Barnabas. Saul became Paul. Saul and Barnabas going back to Judea from Antioch because they heard that there was a famine there and they had taken up a collection and they had gone to share that offering with the people in Judea. And then we pick back up at the end of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. They returned from Jerusalem back to the church at Antioch. And I know that's a long introduction to our text for this morning, but this is an important introduction to see where this particular passage comes in the life of the other church. This is also an introduction to this whole series where we're going to be camping out for the next several weeks uh, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. So I invite you now to look with me at Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Just to give you an idea of where we're going this morning, I want us to see three truths based on this passage in this context. And then uh, from there, I want us to see three implications of those truths for us today in the 21st century church. So three truths. But before we get to those, we have this background information in verse 1. In the church at Antioch, There were these five guys, prophets and teachers. Prophets, those who proclaim the truth. Teachers, those who instruct in the truth. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now Barnabas, we learn prior to this in Acts, that he was an ethnic Jew from Cyprus. He he was uh, uh, a believer and he was used by God in the life of the Jerusalem church. And now he's, he's scattered beyond that. And he's being used as a leader in the church here in Antioch. We know that Saul is, is the one that, uh, that wrote many New Testament letters that became Paul. Saul is the one that, that severely and intensely persecuted the church in Jerusalem. And even beyond Jerusalem because he was opposed to this new way of following this guy named Jesus. And so on a road to Damascus one day... And in 
intense light appears to him, and a voice speaks to him, and it's, it's Jesus, it's the risen Lord, and appears to him, saying, why are you persecuting me? And from that time forward, Jesus had called Saul to be a follower, a faithful follower of him, and so he does so. And we read in the beginning of chapter 8 of Acts that, that Saul was there when Stephen was stoned. Stephen, a martyr in the New Testament church, killed for his proclamation of the gospel. And, and Saul is there approving that decision. In the verses that follow, at the beginning of chapter 8, we see that, that a great persecution broke out then and, and the church scattered as a result of it. How ironic that this guy Saul, whose, whose persecution of believers scattered them to various places, now finds himself as a leader in the church in Antioch, possibly beginning under his own persecution. And we have these other guys, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas. This is, this is Herod the king that, uh, that beheaded John the Baptist. This is Herod that, that mocked Jesus at his trial. And this guy, Menaean, was brought up with him in his court as a, as a friend, as a companion. And he turned out to be a leader in this church. And then the last two, Simeon called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene. Now, Simeon, because of the Latin name that he's given here, Niger, and by the way, that is, that is probably not how you say that, but due to cultural sensitivities in our own history, that's the way we're going to pronounce it this morning. But, but Simeon, based on this Latin name, was dark-skinned. He was a black man. Signifying that he was probably from Africa. Likewise, this guy, Lucius from Cyrene, was also from North Africa. Cyrene being in North Africa. And so right here, just in this introductory verse, which these are not primary points of this passage, but nevertheless they're useful for us. We learn that this church in Antioch had a plurality of leadership, those that were ministering with the word of God, and it was a multi-ethnic church, which no doubt prepared the way for God to speak and to call this church to now spread the gospel even beyond themselves and ultimately to go on a mission to the Gentiles. All right, so verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Truth number one, worship provides the context in which God's Spirit most often speaks to His people. Worship provides the context in which God's Spirit most often speaks to His people. Right here in this passage, we see that this church in Antioch was worshiping the Lord. They were fasting and it's in that moment that the Holy Spirit spoke to them clearly, telling them to set apart these two men for this task. We often equate worship with singing, don't we? But worship is much broader than that. Singing is one expression of our worship to God. But, but ultimately, worship is an attitude and a posture of submission and reverence and obedience to God. So it's out of that posture that, 
That God's Spirit speaks to the church in Antioch. And this isn't the, the only place in the New Testament. In fact, it's not the first place in the New Testament where we see God spe- speaking to His people in an environment or in an atmosphere of worship. We see this in the Great Commission that we looked at last week. Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. The resurrected Jesus appears to His disciples and they worship Him. And it's in that moment... That he gives them the command, the calling, the task. Go and make disciples of all nations. Pastor Kevin Smith of New City Fellowship in Chattanooga, Tennessee, has said this about the Great Commission. There's something wrong with our worship when it doesn't lead to mission. There's something wrong with our worship of God when it doesn't lead to mission. And that's because when we encounter God... And we come before him acknowledging who he is. The natural response is to be awestruck. And to be humbly open and willing to do whatever God calls us to do. And to go wherever he calls us to go. Worship provides the context context in which God's spirit most often speaks to his people. Now we worship God individually as believers. Every day an attitude of of reverence, of obedience, of praise, of worship, of openness, of humility before God. But we also worship God when we come together as a corporate body, as a church. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we we read this. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's be people that anticipate coming together with the church and worshiping God and hearing from God week after week, showing that that is a top priority in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And let's come expectant, knowing that we gather together to exalt the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we believe that when we do that, God's going to speak to us. And He's going to show up and He's going to call us to engage in His work. Worship provides the context in which God's Spirit most often speaks to His people. Truth number two. The church should support and send out Spirit-filled messengers of the Gospel. The church should support and send out Spirit-filled messengers of the Gospel. And we see this taking place right here. Verse 3. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. From every indication, this church in Antioch recognized the importance of the spread of the gospel beyond themselves and ultimately to all peoples. And so they didn't do the selfish thing. No doubt Saul, who became Paul, was was very knowledgeable, was a good teacher. We've already said that he He wrote a good portion of our New Testament that we use today under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. We might say that or assume that Barnabas was probably a good teacher as well. These are not men that you would want to see go. You would want to keep them. But yet, when the Spirit called them to the task of going to proclaim the gospel, they laid their hands on them, they prayed for them, they supported them, and they sent them off with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And when I thought about that truth and how we as Meadowbrook Baptist Church should, should look like that and, and 
and look like the church at Antioch of recognizing the Spirit's call in certain individuals' lives within our congregation and supporting them and praying for them and sending them off. I couldn't help but to think of Jordan and Hannah Self, a couple who came out of this church, members of this church who, who sensed God, God calling them to, to take His gospel to another context and to work, to labor, to joyfully labor for the spread of the gospel. And so for the next few minutes... I want you to hear from Jordan and Hannah. Thank you so much for your support and your prayers. And you're such a huge uh, part of our ministry here. Um, I do counseling and teach the Bible and <clears throat> discipleship. And uh, these missionary kids uh, are really hurting and struggling. And by you guys supporting us and praying for us, you're a huge part of that ministry, and we thank you so much. And God is doing amazing things um, here at Christian Academy of Guatemala and with these missionary kids. And you're just a big part of that, and we thank you so much for that. Hey, guys, where are you going? School! What school do you go to? Alabama! <laughs> where do you go to school? Um, CG. CG? What grade are you in? Um... Kindergarten. Yeah? Do you like it? Yes. Hey, Gracie. Do you go to class? Yes. You want to say, say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. All right. Say bye, Gracie. Bye, Gracie. <laughs> bye. Church, it is a privilege to partner with and pray for and support those that are called out like the selves to take the gospel to other contexts and we need to remember them and continually pray for them and also ask God to send out more of us with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, just as he promised his disciples before he left the earth, is also with us. In fact, the Spirit of God is with us and so to, to send out Spirit-filled messengers of the gospel is not to, to send out like super-Christians or like weird Christians or believers. It is to send out people who have trusted in Christ for salvation and been transformed by that truth. Because the scriptures teach that those who trust in Christ become a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. The church should support and send out Spirit-filled messengers of the gospel. Truth number three. Christian mission is about spreading the word of God. Christian mission is about spreading the word of God. Now, in this particular passage, we don't have uh, many specifics as to what Saul and Barnabas were called to, right? It just says that the Spirit said, set apart these two guys for the work that I've called them. And then they're sent out and they go. But in the verses that follow, in the passages that follow... It becomes abundantly clear what they were called to do. And it wasn't, it wasn't just to go out and to offer humanitarian aid, as good as that is. It wasn't to go out with some sort of secret formula that, that people could utter and then they would end up in paradise. No, it was to go out and it was to make disciples of all nations, to make other followers of Jesus. And they did so by proclaiming the word of God. So journey with me quickly as, as we... See a brief survey of, of chapters 13 and 14 and how, 
how clear it becomes what they were called to do. And so look for the centrality of the Word of God or the centrality of the message of God as they go from place to place. Chapter 13, verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Verse 12. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the Word of God. Verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And in the next place, in this other Antioch, Poseidon Antioch, and we're not going to read it, but there's this long account where, where they're telling the story, they're telling the gospel through the scriptures, through the word of God, starting with the time that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and ultimately pointing ahead to now salvation through Jesus Christ. And then come to verse 44 of chapter 13. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Verses 48 and 49, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who, believed, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing men of high standing and leading men of the city. So the word of God continued to spread. Chapter 14, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Verses 6 and 7, chapter 14. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where, guess what? They continued to preach the good news. Verse 21 of chapter 14, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. In verses 24 and 25, after going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. I'm not trying to belabor the point, but it is abundantly clear from God's word that these men were sent out Number one, to proclaim the word of God, to speak the gospel-centered word of God to all people. That was the task that God had called them to do, to go on that journey. And that is the same task that God has called the church today to do, to participate today in 1,967 years later after those two men embarked on their journey in 46 AD. We as the church are called to the same task of making disciples of Jesus Christ in all nations by going and proclaiming the word of God to all people. We've a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right. A story of truth and mercy, a story of peace and light, a story of peace and light. We've a message to give to the nations that the Lord who reigns above has sent his son to save us and show us that God is love. And show us that God is love. Church, when your, your marching orders come from the Creator, God Almighty, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior, and you've experienced salvation by His grace, it is a joy to carry out His task, to carry out His calling in the world. And if we were to summarize this particular passage, the truths that are found here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, We might say it this way, that through the worship of God, 
The Spirit of God calls the church of God to send out Spirit-filled messengers to proclaim the gospel-centered Word of God. Through the worship of God, the Spirit of God calls the church of God to send out Spirit-filled messengers to proclaim the gospel-centered Word of God. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but take that and, and chew on that for a while because that is, that is a good truth. That is reason to gather, and that is reason to praise God and to expect Him to speak to us. So now, as Dr. Toxie Dorset likes to say, our time is getting skinny. So I'm going to leave you with, uh, I love that phrase, by the way. I'm going to leave you with three implications of these truths for us today. Implication number one, let's cultivate God-centered worship. Let's cultivate God-centered worship. All that we do as individuals, let's, let's make every effort and let's pray and let's hope that, that what we do as individual Christians and as families is reflective of what we believe about God. But let's especially make sure that everything that we do in the name of Meadowbrook Baptist Church is God-centered. In the moment that our worship becomes more about our preferences or our comfort or our feelings, God has ceased to be the center of our worship. Let's cultivate God-centered worship. Truth number two. Because the church is called to to recognize and support and send out spirit-filled messengers of the gospel, let's be a sending church. Let's be a sending church. Let's recognize those that God has placed a particular call on, whether for the short term or the long term. Let's gather them together and let's, let's pray with them. Let's rejoice with them. Let's support them and let's send them out to take the gospel to the nations. And truth number three, because Christian mission is about spreading the word of God, let's know and proclaim the gospel. Let's know and proclaim the gospel. The gospel is God's story found throughout the pages of Scripture. The gospel is the news that, that all humanity is enslaved to sin in a serious predicament, in a serious bind because we have failed to live up to the standard of the eternal God. And because we have failed to live up to that standard, we are deserving of the everlasting judgment of God. But God, because He is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, sent His Son to us. He came to us and provided a way for us to be right with Him, to be reconciled with Him, to be forgiven in Him, to know Him and to experience His presence and to worship Him eternally. And that is good news. That is news that changes us. And because that is true, let's, let's know that truth, and let's proclaim that truth. And in the words of Eugene Peterson, let's eat this book. Let's know it. Let's read it. Let's study it. Let's meditate on it. So that the hope that's found in Christ overflows from our hearts and our minds and our mouths into the lives of others that do not know that hope. Let's know and let's proclaim the gospel. Church, God has saved us by His grace. And that is a truth that leads us to worship Him joyfully 
thankfully and eternally. So let's worship Him now. Because through the worship of God, the Spirit of God calls the church of God to send out Spirit-filled messengers to proclaim the gospel-centered Word of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we're grateful for today. We're grateful for every opportunity to gather in your name. Lord, I pray that we would never take that for granted and that we would would value our intentional times of corporate gatherings, of corporate worshiping you. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us when we gather together to exalt you alone and to hear from you alone. And so, Lord, we, we invite you to to call us, to transform us, to change us by your grace so that we might be messengers of your gospel. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place in a few minutes that we would continually look to you, desire to honor you and to know you and to to speak your truth and to live lives that support what it is we say we believe about you. God, you're a good God and we thank you that that your presence is with us, Lord, that your word promises that where two or three gather in your name, you are with them, and we're grateful people for that. Lord, may you speak to us this morning. May you hear our worship. May you be glorified in us, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.